Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So page 41 in the middle. Abdurrahman ibn Jabir ibn Nafir reported that his father told him that when I was in Yemen, I had a Jewish neighbor who used to tell me about the Torah. This Jew came to me after a journey and I said to him, the father said to him, that Allah SWT sent a prophet amongst us who has summoned us to Islam and we have submitted means we have accepted Islam. And he has also, Allah SWT has also revealed to us a book, Yani Quran, which confirms this tasdik of the Torah. So the Jew responded that you speak the truth, yet you will not be able to do what that Prophet has brought you, because we the Jews have found the description of that Prophet in the Torah and the description of his community in the Torah. And the way that Prophet is described in the Torah is that that Prophet will not allow a man of his community to even leave the door of his home with having any hatred in his heart for his fellow Muslim brother, and you people won't be able to do that. That's what the Jew said. It says that we know that he is going to bring such an atla, such an exalt, such a great being, which calls a person to such a great level of character, you won't be able to do it. Allah Akbar. So part of the matter, Imam Huzai says, part of the matter is keeping quiet and not divulging a brother's secret which he has entrusted to you. You should deny knowledge of it, even if this means lying. For to speak the truth is not incumbent on every circumstance. Okay. What does this mean? So let's say that you are carrying the secret of a person. What could be an example that you would understand? That one of your friends is doing something on Dean, but they haven't told you his parents. One of your friends is doing something on Dean. And he hasn't told his parents. And then all of a sudden his parents call you up. And ask you about their son. And this is a matter that is better resorted between son and father. It's not going to be your place to divulge the secret of that son. Right? And in fact, unless the parents get the information in the proper way from the proper source, which means from their own son, this would be a source of actually great anger for the parents. Now here what Imam Ghazayantai says to so deny knowledge of it, right? He says even if this means lying, for to speak the truth is not incumbent in every circumstance. What does this mean? This is a topic that the Muhaddisin actually have written quite a lot about in the commentaries. When is it possible not to tell the truth? So obviously one instance they cite is when you can fear the loss of your life, that you can lie in order to protect your life, if you were, your very life is threatened or security, or izzah of your family, or children, or anything of that high level of value is threatened. Second, the Prophet said that if you can mend relations between husband and wife, then it's permissible to lie. What does it mean by lie? It doesn't mean a very outright sinister lie. But it means, for example, if let's say Abdullah and Fatima are husband and wife, and they're not getting along, so there's a third person who is trying to do solah, who is trying to reconcile, right, between the two of them. So let's say it's Fatima's brother, right? And he is the one who arranges the match with his sister Fatima and his best friend Abdullah. So Fatima's brother goes to Fatima and says that Fatima, you know, what's happened? She says, oh, that Abdullah, I never want to see him again. I never want to speak to him again. It's all your fault. You got me married to your friend. I'm upset with you, friend. Listen, this is okay. He goes to Abdullah. And Abdullah, he asks his friend, and you know, what's the situation with my sister? 
your sister, she's not what you told me she is, and she's this, and she's that, and you trapped me, and you made me marry your sister. Okay? <laughs> now look what is it. This is the two initial feedback he gets. Now he goes back to Fatima. What does he say? Fatima, you know, I met Abdullah, and he's feeling sad, and he regrets what happened. Oh, really? He's feeling sad? He regrets what happened? You know, I'm feeling kind of sad also, and maybe it shouldn't have happened. Then he goes to Abdullah and says, Oh, you know, Fatima, she says she's feeling sad at what happened, the fight that you had. Abdullah says, Oh, really? Fatima, she's feeling sad. I'm also feeling very sad about what happened. Then he does the salah. But initially, <laughs> initially he had actually, literally, outwardly, he told a lie to bring people to that salah. That's clearly mentioned in Hadith, that you can lie for the sake of salah between husband and wife. Now, this is a field of Islamic scholarship that is not you know, not settled. Different scholars, sometimes when I normally explain this to people, I call it turning the knob. So when you have a hadith that has a literal meaning, how much can you extrapolate from that? How much can you create umum in that mana? How much can you do qiyas on that? Some ulama felt that, okay, if it's allowed for sulah between husband and wife, it's allowed for any type of sulah. Maybe between parent and child. Maybe between fellow Muslim and fellow Muslim. Other ulama felt that, no. It's only allowed for husband and wife. Potsam said husband and wife. It means only and only husband and wife. This difference of how far you can turn the knob, this is one of the fundamental features of the reason why there are differences of opinion in Summa. Right? Imam al Taala, being a Shafi, in his usul and his furu, was a person who, by definition of that, believed that you can turn the knob in certain cases, under certain conditions, right? With certain scholarly apparatus, known as usul. So he believes that you can turn the knob, and not just for sulah for husband and wife, but for any type of sulah, and he takes it all the way to this level, for fellow mu'min and mu'min, fellow Muslim and Muslim, brother and brother, sister and sister, you are allowed then to tell Allah in the situation. Right? So that is something, lest you think that, oh, right, today's person, they engage in what, you know, in media they call it pull quote journalism. They take one thing out, Right? So they say, look, Imam Ghazali, he said that it's not incumbent to speak the truth in every circumstance. Are you going to listen to such a person? That's why in Ahiyal al-Madin, they'll pick up another quote. When he told you this, this is coming from that same person who says that it's not incumbent to speak the truth in every circumstance. Then the fiery rhetoric and mashallah, right? That's not proper scholarship. That's attack. That's su'idhan, Right? That is negative thinking, negative scholarship, not like that. So here, Imam Azali had this view. And if a person wants to take the view of the other scholars that no, it only applies to husband and wife, they can take that view, then they can leave this particular line, but they can benefit from the rest. Right? Okay. Just as it is permitted to a man to hide his own faults and secrets, even if he needs to lie, so may he do so for his brother's sake. That is also one that is agreed upon in scholars. You don't have to confess your sins to every single person on earth. You're not required to truthfully disclose in full honesty all of your sins because that's between you and Allah SWT. That's between you and Allah SWT. For his brother stands in his own shoes and the pair are like one person, different only in body. And this is the true nature of brotherhood. Furthermore, in what one does in one's brother's presence, one should not be hypocritical. In other words, what does this mean? That you should be yourself. You should be yourself in the presence of your fellow mu'mineen. It should not be that when you're alone, you're one way. And when you're in front of fellow mu'mineen, you're a different way. 
that will lead to a recurring pattern and then an entrenched sifat of nifaq that publicly you're one way, privately you're another way. No. You should be yourself. Nor should one abandon one private, one's private from one's public behavior. Again, simply you can understand that. Be yourself. For your brother's knowledge of what you do is like your own knowledge of it without distinction. What does it mean? So he's going back to that very first city dimension. That the two mu'mineen are like two hands in a pair. Right? Like sometimes they say in English they have this term two peas in a pod. I don't know you have that in British English. Right? Nay. Okay. Peas have a pod. They come in a pod. The two peas in a pod. Hmm? They're very close to one another. They're very close to one another. Here. Sayyidina Rasulullah said this way. He did this city for you. If a Muslim covers his brother's shame, Allah SWT will veil him. I will cover his shame in this world and in the Akhir. In other days, he says that it is as if he restores to life a baby girl buried alive. This is actually, this was a sin uh, that they used to do in Jahiliya, pre-Islamic Arabia. I mean, they didn't want a baby girl. So they used to bury her alive. This shows you many, many things, right? Shows you obviously very severe gender discrimination, but it also shows you the animalistic nature. To bury somebody alive is a torturous way to kill somebody. It means they will die of suffocation. They will swallow the earth that you throw upon them. And to do that to a baby, and then to do that to your own baby, <laughs> it's not like society would do this. The father would do it. Allah <laughs> Akbar. That's Sayyidina Rasulullah, he says, we could take people who are like that. Don't assume not all Sahaba were like that. But there will be some, unnamed and unknown to us, right? But the Prophet did take people who actually had buried their baby girl alive and made them into a Sahaba, made them into a Mu'min, made them into a Muslim, made them into Muttaki. That's the power of Deen. That's the power of Deen of Islam. Right? So Sayyidina Rasulullah also said, if a man gives information and looks about him, it is a confidence. So what does it mean that a person speaks to you and they lean in? Right? They look around. So they're teaching you how to read body language of people. That that body language of person that they lean into you, they look deep into your eyes, they look left and right to make sure nobody's listening, means, and that's an ashar to you, that this is something that I must keep in the closest of confidence. And the Prophet said that all sessions are confidential. Right? Al-Majalus bin Amana, except three. That in which blood is shed unlawfully. So if you witness a murder, that's not okay, that's a confidential thing, I saw him murder. No, that you have to tell. That in which zina takes place. And that in which uh, property is misappropriated. It can be theft, it can be misappropriation, ghasab, it can be something like that. And again, the Prophet said, when two people sit down in session, together, their proceedings are confidential, and neither of them may divulge anything distasteful to the other. A man of culture was asked, it's probably Sahib al-Tahzib, means that a person of other was asked, that how do you keep a secret? He said, I'm its tomb, means I'm the chariot, gets buried in me. You can deposit your secret in me and then you can forget about that it will ever, ever have a chance to become surfaced. Then he said, there's a saying proverb amongst the Arabs, that the breasts of free men are the tombs of secrets. According to another, the fool's heart is in his mouth, but the intelligent man's tongue is in his heart. What does it mean? Fool's heart is in his mouth means that whatever in his heart is here, he's just speaking without thinking. Whatever he knows, he says. Right? But the intelligent man's tongue is in his heart. <laughs> Fool's heart is here. Intelligent man's tongue is here. Even he swallowed his tongue. <laughs> he speaks very less. 
That is, the fool cannot conceal what is inside him, but unconsciously blurts it out. Therefore, it is necessary to break off relations with fools and to be aware of their company, nay, the very sight of them. Okay, now this is a bit strong, you will find, right? But Malana Rumrathai also said the same thing, that a foolish friend is more harmful than an evil, intelligent enemy, than an intelligent enemy. And he gives the example of the bear. This is one of the most famous hikayat or parables in the Masnafi. That there's a big bear, literally bear, no bear, right? Grizzly bear, right? And there's a person who apparently is the, it's his pet bear. <laughs> so he's taking a nap and his bear sees that there's a f- mosquito fly that keeps coming on his face. So the bear is trying to swat the fly away, but the fly keeps coming back. So then what the bear does is next time the fly is here, the bear takes a big boulder and tries to smash the fly because it wants to protect its master from the fly. From the dis- But when the big bear smashes the boulder on the fly, the person's master's face and skull gets smashed. He actually kills his master. <laughs> story. story that Malana Ruhamantai coined to show us. That the bear was the likeness of the foolish friend. And sometimes the foolish friend is well-wishing. Sometimes it's well-wishing. Right? Can take you wrong way. Huh? He's well-wishing. But he makes a mistake. Makes a mistake. Right? Here, however, Imam Ghazali was talking about a particular type of folly. And that is that person who says what should not be said. Reveals what should have been concealed. And he's saying that, okay, you should better protect yourself from such a person. Another one was asked, how do you keep a secret? He says, I deny knowledge of the informant and I give my oath to the questioner. And another said that I hide it and hide the fact that I'm hiding it. Ibn al-Mu'taz expressed himself in verse, so this would have been an Arabic poem, but he has tried to make it rhyme in English also in the translation, but that would probably lose the meaning a little bit for the sake of the rhyme. Entrusted with a secret, I undertake to hide it. So I bank it in my breast and that becomes a vault for it. Another poet wanting to continue said that the secret in my breast is not like the inmate of a tomb for I see that even the one that is entombed ex- expects the resurrection. And then I don't know why he keeps translating Qabr and Dafan as tomb. It means like the person in the grave. But even the grave will one day, person, he will also one day come out. They think that my secret will never come out. <laughs> it will never come out. I prefer to forget it until it might seem that I never even had of it the least recollection. Could the secret between us be hidden away? From the heart and the bowels it would never see the day. Someone disclosed the secret of his to his brother. He asked him later, have you remembered it? He said, no, I've forgotten it even that you told me that secret. I will say the authority Allah used to say, if you wish to take a man as your brother, anger him. It's a test. Anger him and then contrive to bring him in contact with somebody who will ask him about you and your secrets. If he speaks well of you and hides your secret, then make him your fellow. What does this mean? So do something to provoke him. I'm not actually suggesting you should do this. This was an early time. People of high Adamarakhlaq, this is not test for you to do today. But just understand what he was saying that provoke someone, make them angry with you, and then have him meet somebody who has envy for you as an enemy of you and see what does he say to that person. And if because remember that person said earlier to the Sabbath to the Boston that I was angry with him so I said something bad about him. Right? So see what he says. Abuzid is asked, Abuzid al Bustamirimullah, whom would you take as your fellow? So he replied, one who knows of you as much as Allah Ta'ala knows, then hides it as Allah Ta'ala hides it. In other words, somebody who's my intimate and best friend, he'll know me inside and out. Almost like, obviously not literally, but almost as good as Allah Ta'ala knows me. But he will also hide my sins inside and out, 
just like my Allah Ta'ala hides my sins inside and out from people. He's going to be as satar with me as Allah Ta'ala is satar with me. After knowing all my faults and sins, just like Allah Ta'ala knows all my faults and sins. Ajeeb. Zunnun al-Misri said that there is no good in the fellowship of one who only likes to see you immaculate. Immaculate means pure from sin. That they, if they see some flaw in you, then they erupt. They have an outburst. Right? And that's again how many of us are with our spouses. That as long as the wife is perfectly nice, the husband is okay. Slight, slight slip. She's also human. Slight slip. Outburst on the husband's part. Not a good husband. Not a good husband like that. One who divulges a secret when angry is of base character. For all sound natures demand that it be hidden when one is content. A wise man said, do not take as your fellow one whom you find changeable under four conditions. I'm going to fast because the content is the same. There's just more and more examples, right? But unless there's new content, I won't pause and comment on it. So do not take as your fellow one whom you find changeable under four conditions. What does it mean that they fluctuate? They don't have istikama. When he is angry, he fluctuates. Be wary of that person. When he is happy, has too much joy, he can also fluctuate. Be wary of such a person. When he is greedy, be wary of such. He fluctuates. Be wary of such a person. Or when he is desirous, when he feels some feeling of desire, he also wavers and fluctuates. You should be wary of such a person. While their true brotherhood should be firm against any change, even in any one of these four conditions. They should be as true to you even when they're angry. They should be as true to you when they're happy. They should be as true to you when they're greedy. And as true to you when they're overcome with some desire. Thus it is said, see how the noble, when you sever your bond, still hides the bad and plays you true. And it's not so good, but see how the person who has maruwa, that when you cut off your friendship with them, still they hide the sins and shortcomings and faults. They came to know about you when you were their friend. And they remain true to you. And see how the vile person, I'm sorry, this is Sharif and Shaki. See how the person who is Shaki, who is vile, that even if you remain friends with them, still they will hide all of the good attributes, virtues in you, and they will be untrue to you. And they will mention your flaws to others. Allah Ba'a said it to his son Abdullah, that I see this man, Abbas said to his son Abdullah bin Abbas, that I see Sayyidina Umar preferring you over the elders. So remember five bits of advice from me. So father saw that his son became caught the eye of Sayyidina Umar. That Sayyidina Umar had a special love for Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas. So then the father called his son and said, look, I'll give you some advice. Number one, never give a secret to him. Never slander anyone in his presence. In other words, don't divulge. doesn't mean share your secret. It means don't break somebody else's confidence and the secret that somebody else told you, don't spill it to him. It's not clear in the English. You got it? It's not, he's not saying don't tell Umar your own secret. He's saying any secret that somebody else entrusted you with, don't betray that trust and say it to say the Umar, even however close you become to him. Because it's an amanat that the other person gave to you. Right? Don't slander anyone in his presence. Don't uh, if anybody has spread a lie about Sayyidina Umar, don't lend any credence to it. Don't disobey Sayyidina Umar in anything that he tells you to do. And on no account let him ever catch you in any betrayal, any disloyalty, any treachery. Ash-Sha'bi Rehmullah said, every word of this, so commenting on this statement, he said that every word of these five is better than a thousand. And it says, as if a person got 
Now each one of these is more, each single advice is even more valuable and priceless to us than a thousand advices. Silence includes abstaining from contention and contradiction and contradicting whatever your brother talks about. Right? So one of the things about keeping the tongue silent is not challenging everything he says. Sometimes some of us have that. Then a person says something, you interject, challenge. Then a person says the second thing, again you interrupt, interject, and you challenge. Right? So not like that. Let him speak. And whether you agree or disagree, that's your own choice. Right? Ibn Abbas said, they do not dispute with the fool. With the fool, for he will hurt you, nor with the mild man, for he will dislike you. The Prophet said that if a man gives up contention when he is in the wrong, a house will be built for him within the garden of paradise. But if a man gives up contention even when he is right, you, know, you are arguing with someone, then you realize you're wrong. Sometimes people just stir up and they don't want to admit they're wrong. They keep going. So the Prophet said, no, once you realize you're wrong, then you should pull back. If you do that, then Allah Ta'ala will build for your house in paradise. And if there's a person that you try to convince someone of something, and you know you're right, but even then, when you realize it's just moving to contention, and you're going at it with one another, then you pull back, then Allah Ta'ala will build a house for him in the highest part of Jannah. Right? I mean, sometimes you have to learn how to withdraw. It's not always about contention and disagreement and engagement. Well, it is. it was his duty to give it up if he was in wrong. But if he didn't give it up, then the, you giving it up, right, giving up the argument, withdrawing from the argument, right, when he wasn't fulfilling his duty, made your act even greater. For to remain silent when one is right is harder on the nafs than keeping quiet when one is wrong. Very easy to, when you know you're wrong, it's easier to keep quiet. But when you know you're right, it's very difficult to keep quiet. Very difficult to keep quiet. Recompense is in proportion to the effort. So the jaza, the reward that a person will get, will be based on the effort that they make. The most serious causes that fan the fire of real rancor, malice, spite, hatred, bad feeling between brothers are this. Contention and disputation. Bath and mubahatha. Mujadala, munadara. Arguing, disputing with one another. Debating with one another. They've got anything that's called heated arguments. When you have a heated argument, then what happens? Then you go home, then you replay the argument, huh? And then you remember all the wonderful answers that you wish you could have given, huh? <laughs> yes? You hit replay. Like, you know, you replay. Some people, they like instant replay, huh? So they replay the match, and they start thinking of all the great verbal attacks they could have made, they would have made, they should have made, they wish they had made, right? And then they feel even more angry. They get even more worked up. Then they might even not have noticed on the first instance how that person may have said something mean to them. But then when they replay it, they might, oh, actually, yeah, he even said that to me. I let it go. I let it slip. Heated arguments. Heated arguments have a very bad effect and they have a very bad after effect. And then Imam Uzzah writes that these are the very essence of variance and rupture. This is what causes ikhtilaf and farq, the freak separation. Severing of the relations. Corrupture starts off with opinions, then becomes verbal, and then finally physical. Yes? You've seen that? Sometimes heated arguments lead to physical physical fights. Ajeeb? Sayyidina Rasulullah what did he say? Do not fall out with one another. Do not hate one another. Do not envy one another. Do not break off with one another. Serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just say, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as brethren. The Muslim is a brother to their fellow Muslim. He does not wrong him. He cannot offend him. Nor can he forsake him. 
no matter what his sins are. I'm adding here, no matter what his sins may be. A man can do no worse than disgrace his fellow Muslim. There's no worse thing that we can do than be a course of cause of dhillah for our fellow Muslim brother. And the worst dhillah, the worst disgrace is contention, disputation. For if you reject what another says, you're actually accusing him of ignorance or stupidity or forgetfulness and absent-mindedness and understanding a subject. All this constitutes zillat, annoyance, and alienation. Look today, this is not the complete opposite of what people do today. Different groups are at it with one another. One scholar accuses the other one of being ignorant. The other one accuses the other one of being mistaken. The other one accuses the other one of being misguided. The other one accuses the other one of being close-minded. The other one accuses the other one of being too open-minded. <laughs> yes? <laughs> one accusing one of being too close-minded. One accusing the other of being too close-minded. One says the other one is too intolerant. The other one says the other one is too tolerant. But, yeah, going at it. Going at it. So at some point you have to realize this is a very deep teaching. That okay, Imam Uzzah is not trying to say you will never disagree. But what he's saying is that at some point you have to stop the contention. Say your proof. Let them say their proof. Present your arguments. But then that's it. Then you have to pull back. That's what these people were like. And it's a big problem today, people who have a bit more learning, especially who know Arabic, sometimes they hear, even very few of them read it themselves. So I was reading some text of Imam Shafi last year. And when you read it, especially the section is Al-Um, where he talks about his ikhtilaf with Imam Malik, sometimes he goes at it. <laughs> you feel like he's a boxer in the ring, taking on Imam Malik, but the difference was that it was just in the ring. <laughs> And they stepped out, they would be best friends and lovers. They didn't actually associate too much, but they would have the best of love for one another. What today people do is they only take that of Imam Shah, they never leave the boxing ring, put it that way. And they quote as evidence for themselves, look what Imam Shafi said. And then in fact they look at this whole early literature in the Tabai Tabin, and that's how it was. Kitab al Rad al Asir al Azai, Kitab al Ikhtilafi Abi Layla, and etc. Hujja al Ahl Medina. And then Imam Shafi his ikhtilaf bimalik and ikhtilaf with Amal of Medina. So they say ikhtilaf literature, rad literature, hujja literature, etc., etc. So they say that's what we do. That's what deen is all about. That's not what deen was about. That was one aspect of their scholarly activity. And notwithstanding that, and one of the best things that we don't have time to do that for you, that we can just give you an ishara. But the best, one of the best ways to understand that is a letter that Imam Malik wrote to Imam Layth ibn Sa'ad. And then Imam Layth ibn Sa'ad wrote a letter back to him. This must be studied to understand the other biblical. They completely disagree with one another, fully. But they show in that letter they completely love one another, even after they quote-unquote agree to disagree. Right? The disagreement doesn't get finished at all. At the end of the letters, they are completely disagreeing. But then they agree to pull back and withdraw. Imam Malik does not push the issue. Imam Layth ibn Sa'ad does not push the issue. And these were Tabai Tabin, Imam Malik Allah, and Imam Laith Musa were Tabai Tabin. So that's the real Adab of Ikhtilaf. Here we don't have that anymore. If the person doesn't withdraw, then he will be labeled. He could be labeled as anything, any of those things, open minded, closed minded, depending on who's doing the labeling and who is being labeled. So here Imam Ghazalayanta says that no, that this is actually Zillat, you're actually doing Tadlil. You are making that person disgraced. According to Shina Abu Mama al-Bahiri, Sayyidina Sallallahu came out to us as we were disputing. He was angry. 
He got angry when he saw Sahaba having an argument and he told him, give it up because there is very little good in it. Give it up because the use of this contention and argument is very small and instead it stirs up enmity among brothers. If a man quarrels and disputes with his brother, his manliness means his honor. His honor dimin diminishes and his virtue goes. Second quote, the barrier of disputing with men, for you will never negate the cunning of the mild and the onslaught of the vile. One of the early believers said, the most impotent of men uh, is he who falls short in seeking brothers, yet even more impotent is he who loses those that he has won. What does it mean? He's not able to befriend mu'minin. That's very bad. He doesn't have ability to, to befriend fellow mu'minin unless they're from the exact same, right? I went to one masjid, now I won't say son of the city, and every committee member of that masjid was from a particular country, a particular province in that country, a particular village of that country, of that province, of that, no, a particular country, particular province of the country, particular city of that province, and a particular neighborhood of that city. Yes? <laughs> That's the only person they can befriend. <laughs> so what does it mean to be an ummah then? We've reduced ummah. Right? If I said, okay, Ummah for me is you have to be Pakistani and Lahori, but born in New York and also follow Hanafi and this, so then I've reduced Ummah to maybe 20 people. <laughs> right? Ajeeb? You know? Still some people, they don't understand. They And sometimes it's their ikhlas. They feel that it's their duty that no, the other person is misguided. Because they're so convinced that the other person is on Dalala, on Bida, on whatever... Right? But the deen doesn't teach us that that person should be excommunicated from the ummah. This was a small group called the Kharijiyah who felt that no, they should be Kharij. Take him out. Otherwise, other than them, every single person, whether it's Imam Munifa, Imam Shafi, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Rimullahu Ta'ala, Imam ibn Taymiyyah, Imam ibn Qayyim, Imam Ghazali, all of them, they felt everybody is still inside the ummah. We don't take somebody out, they're still inside. When they're still inside, all of this still applies to me. They're still mu'minin. They're still my brethren. They're still my brethren. Right? What can you do? One of the believers said that if a man quarrels and disputes with his brother, I did that for you. And do not buy the enmity of one man for the love of a thousand men. Ajib Hassan al-Basrah, I said, that do not buy, do not mean, for the sake of getting a thousand people to love you, do not anger one person. That's how much you should not want to anger one mu'min. Do not want to anger one mu'min. In general, the only motive for contention is to display intellectual superiority. Look at this. 90% <laughs> of the quote-unquote debates that happen, they just want to show their intellectual prowess. I know more Arabic than him. I know more Hadith than him. Watch how I perform. That's actually what's going on. It's not a search for the haq or however they try to advertise it. It's not normally, very rarely can it be like that. Right? only motive for contention is to display intellectual superiority and to belittle one's opponent by showing his ignorance. This amounts to arrogance. This is kibber, contempt, hurtfulness and the insulting charge of folly and ignorance. There is no meaning to enmity but this. So what part can it have in brotherhood and true friendship? Ibn Abbas, you know, by the way, i just tell you a little bit although I don't do that for you when we have such little time. But Imam Ghazayrat is living in a time of extreme contention between these two groups of Ashari's and Hanbali's. Extreme contention. Books were being written by both sides. This was just in the immediate, the 
time immediately preceding him. Books were written by both sides doing takfir of the other, uh, proclaiming the unbelief of the other. Parades, or you can call them the Jalus, processions, not parades. Processions were being taken place in the streets of Baghdad, one party against the other, then again the other party against the other. So Imam al has written a wonderful book called Faisal At-Tafrika, which explains very clearly that there may be differences, but those differences don't put one outside Iman, does not put one in kufr. So he's very, very much against the kafir. Here, uh, Sayyidina Rasulullah said that do not speak with your brother, do not mock him, do not go back on your promise to him. Sayyidina Rasulullah also said you will not win people with your wealth, but will win them as a cheerful face and a good character. Alright. Chapter 4. Fourth duty is to use the tongue for speaking out. It's another duty in the four of the eight. We can see if we can at least do half of it today. Speaking out means that just like sometimes the right of your brother is that you should be silent about certain things, just like that sometimes the right of your brother is that no, you should be vocal about certain things. That you should lend support to him with your word, with your speech. The justice brother calls for sounds about unpleasant things, so it requires the utterance of favorable things. Indeed, this is more particularly a feature of brotherhood because anyone satisfied with silence alone might as well seek the fellowship of the people of the graveyards. You wish for brothers so as to benefit by them, not just to escape being hurt by them. And the point of silence is to avoid hurt, so that means that the purpose of speaking will be to provide benefit. You should use the tongue to express affection to your brother. Right? This is another thing that a lot of us, we don't do. Unaffectionate. We can't talk. We're very somber, morose, hmm? reserved people. That's not the sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah He was warm, open, affectionate person. Yes, it may be, my, it may be a person that says, it's my temperament, I'm a more quiet person. But they have to fix it, they have to change it. They have to follow the sunnah of the manakhla. They have to follow the sunnah personality of Sayyidina Rasulullah Right? And to inquire agreeably about that person, brother's circumstances. For instance, in asking about some accident that has befallen him, you should show your heart's concern on his behalf and over his slow recovery. Thus you should indicate by word and deed that you disapprove of all circumstances that are disagreeable to him and use your tongue to let him know that you share his joy in all conditions that give him pleasure. For brotherhood means participating together in joy and also participating together in sadness. Sayyidina Rasulullah said, If one of you loves his brother, let him know it. One of you loves his brother, should let him know it. He gave this command because the communication brings br- communication brings about an increase in love. So this is what is called muhabba and izhar muhabba, right? And actually, muhabba, love is that thing that must be manifested. Love is something that cannot remain hidden. The power of love, the nature of love, is such that it always manifests itself. If the brother knows that you love him, then he will naturally love you too, without a doubt. If you know that he loves you too, then without a doubt, you will love him more. This love will go progressively from each side and then will multiply. <laughs> Mutual love among believers is required by Sharia and is desired in our deen. Therefore, Sayyidina Rasulullah used to say, actually this is a mistake in the translation, it's tahadu tahabu. Tahadu means give hadya. He's translated as guide one another. No. Tahadu means give hadya, give gifts to one another. The mutual giving of gifts, tahabu, will lead to the mutual feelings of love. This is considered one of those famous hadith 
you know what we say, Makallah wa Madallah. The Prophet has some very concise words, but oh, very deep meaning. This is two words. Tahadu, Tahabu. Mutually give gifts. Those of you who this is Babi Tafa'ul from Janibin. It's Khasiyat is from Janibin. Two ways. Two way mutual giving of gifts will lead to mutual, two way mutual feelings of love. So that means it's actually part of the Sunnah teachings of the Prophet that we should give gifts to one another, but for this need in order to increase the love we feel for one another. Right? Part of the matter is calling your brother by his favorite names. <laughs> Be he absent or present. So Sayyidina Umar used to say, there are three ways of showing sincere brother love. Number one, you should give the greeting of Salaam when you first meet him. Number two, you should make them comfortable. And number three, you should call them by their favorite names. Right? So that's why even today, we... Uh, Give an example. Numan ibn Thabit, he liked Abu Hanifa, so everybody called him Abu Hanifa. Right? Uh, Sayyidina Abu Huraira, Radana, even you call him by his favorite name, we nicknamed the Prophet and gave him Abu Huraira, so he liked then everybody should call me now Abu Huraira, because Sayyidina Rasulullah called me Abu Huraira. Even now, then all of Ummah knows him, he's more famous, Al Maruf. He's Maruf, in this, this luck of Abu Huraira. Right? Sayyidina Rasulullah used to call Amma Aisha the Humaira. He used to call Ya Humaira. That was his nickname for her. In fact, that's actually Sunnah to have a nickname for your wife. Let me give you a few nuggets so that when you go home also, your wives will give me dua. Inshallah. Yes? It's Sunnah to have a nickname for your wife. But it has to be a nickname that she likes. <laughs> yes? Once I did this in Pakistan and then later I got a message from a woman. But thanks to you, my husband is giving me this nickname. I don't like being called by this nickname. <laughs> that has to be a nickname. Yeah, that she likes. It's coming, right? That's what said. What they like. And I can also tell you for the young men, young married or soon to be married or even middle-aged who are still not married, some of you. Yes. I have a new category here I've discovered in Cambridge. Middle-aged, not yet married. Yes. So we give you a special technique now. We can't... I don't know if I'll be there when you get married. So I'll tell you now. You should have a nickname for your wife that she likes. And you keep that. That's your secret weapon. When she is angry with you, you have to call her by that nickname. Yes? It will melt. Nickname means that name that you call upon her with love that will melt her heart when you messed up. <laughs> That's the purpose of nickname. So when you call her with that name, then her heart, when you messed up, then you have to use that nickname. Not saying Sayyidina Rasulullah ever messed up like that. But sometimes when there is one, any hair that goes somewhere, but there is one hadith that Amma Aishwanda, she was, let's say she was upset. Maybe she shouldn't have been upset, but she got upset about something. So Sayyidina Sussam, to what we call mollify her, to please her, he said, Ya Humaira, he called her with that name, and then she became happy. <laughs> yes, she became happy. Ajeeb. So, Sometimes you have to change the nickname over years, but I can't give you so many advices. Not like that for free. Huh? Uh-huh. Come to learn duties of brotherhood and I teach you secrets of marriagehood. Huh? Yes. <laughs> so another part is praising him for the good qualities you know him to possess. So this is uses of the tongue. So I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. One use of the tongue to support is to praise him for the good qualities he possesses. Now we normally think that no, you shouldn't praise somebody to in front of them. We always say things, don't praise someone to their face. That is if you feel there's a danger that if you praise them to their face, then they will feel ujub and takabur. 
But many times, sometimes you praise someone, they feel encouragement, like we do with children, right? We are all spiritual children. You see, people have different ages. One is your physical age. So physical age, a person may be 30. One is your intellectual age. That Some 30-year-olds may still be 20. Some 30 may, mashallah, be 40. One is your maturity, emotional maturity, right? Your emotional age. Some people may be physically 30, but they still act like they're teens. Yes? You can see that in the society around you. In their 20s, they still act like teenagers. In their 30s, they still act like teenagers. And in their 40s, they have a midlife crisis because all of a sudden they realize they can't be a teenager anymore. Even in their 40s, they still wanted to be like a teenager. And that's why they have a midlife crisis. I can't be a teenager anymore. So one is a person's physical age, one is intellectual age, one is emotional, one is a person's spiritual age. What is their age in terms of their level of iman and taqwa? So we are pretty much still in first grade. We are in first grade taqwa. <laughs> you know, class one, form one, first grade. We're like that. So we need encouragement. Sometimes a person needs encouragement. So praising him in front of him encourages him. You should do that. You should do that. Second, is that you should thank him for what he does on your behalf. So second use of tongue is to be grateful, thankful, to be appreciative. Shukr. And is hard of that shukr. Third way is to defend him in his absence. To defend him in his absence. So if somebody does ghibat about your brother to you, you should immediately point out a good quality. This has several benefits. Some people ask, so what am I supposed to do when somebody starts backbiting in front of backbiting someone in front of me? You should immediately mention a good point about that person. Then what will happen is the person who is doing the backbiting will get upset. <laughs> they don't want to hear the good qualities about that person. They wanted to sound off the bad qualities of that person. So maybe they'll say another one, then again you say another one, then they realize that, okay, I'm this person going to torture me. <laughs> Every time I open my mouth, you're going to say something good about that person. They'll themselves change the topic. Yes? They will change the topic. That person who backbites someone does not like to hear good things about them. You keep saying good things, they will change the topic. This is not the person to tell my backbiting to. They'll change the topic themselves. People get worried. And there's no harm, by the way, and you shouldn't be so scared of changing the topic yourself. Change the topic completely, even if it's outward. Out of the blue, change it completely. Sometimes people do ghibat, not sometimes, many times, of own family members. Own family members. Of nephews, of nieces, of aunts and uncles, right? Just change the topic. Change the topic immediately. Alright. That was the third one. Alright. Defend in one absence. Imam gives lots of things like this. On page 52 in the middle, Mujahid, who was one of the Tabin, one of the great students of Sayyid Abdullah bin Abbas, said, Refer to your brother in his absence only as you would have him refer to you in your absence. So there are two measures you can apply. In the first case, when something is said about your brother, you consider what you would want him to reply on your behalf. Therefore, if the same were, if, how you would have wanted him to reply on your behalf if the same thing was said about you in his presence, then you should respond. So as if somebody said something bad about you to X, how would you want X to defend you? That's how you should defend X, if somebody says something bad about X to you. Second case, you suppose that he is present behind the wall, listening to your words, but thinking that you are unaware of his presence. Ask yourself how your heart will be moved to help him when you were in his hearing and sight, and so it should be that if you are actually not in his hearing and sight, you are actually in his absence. Page 54, this uh, next duty is to use the tongue to speak. This also embraces instruction and advice. Ilm and nasiha. 
You must use the tongue to counsel and invite that person or mind that person towards Dean. This we also mentioned to you earlier. <laughs> Interesting things here. Hopefully it's enough that you guys can read the book. So I will just then spend one or two minutes on each of the other four things. And maybe some other day in our life we can try to sit and do it in more detail. The fifth of the eight duties is forgiveness of mistakes and failings. So fifth duty that every Muslim has, fifth right that every Muslim has over us, and a duty that we have for every Muslim is to forgive their mistakes and failings. We hear one thing that Imam Azai says, in case of deen, when he commits a mistake or has a failing in deen and persists in it, then you must advise him kindly. You must advise him kindly so as to restore him to a state of virtue. If you are incapable of this and he remains stubborn, at this point there is a divergence in the ways followed by the Saba and Tabin. That whether one option is that you maintain the affection or number two, you should cut off relations. Right? So he gives examples of two Sahaba here. Sayyidina Abu Dhar said that if your brother turns back on his duty, then you should hate him as you used to love him. And Abu Darda, Abu Darda took the other view, that if your brother alters and changes his course, do not desert him on that account, for your brother will sometimes be crooked and sometimes be straight. Just like that, the Imam of Hazari Allah holds some other sayings on both sides, and then he gives some stories on both sides. At the end, he prefers himself, he prefers, the view of Sayyidina Abu Dardar and says that this is more proper and safer, right? So then he asks, answers your question. What did he say? 63, middle. You may well ask how I can call that view of Abu Dardar more subtle, more penetrating. You might argue that it is not permissible to initiate a contract of brotherhood with one who commits sin or commits offense. And if he does that, then the contract of brotherhood should have to be dissolved, right? So Imam Azai says that when I speak of the subtler view, what I'm referring to is the way in which there's more tenderness, more consolation, more benevolence. Why? Because this will be more effective in making him remember, and this will be more effective in inspiring him to make tawbah. will be more inspiring and motivational for that person. Whereas if you cut off relations and sever for him, then he will be obstinate and he will just persist in his ways. You will leaving him to his own doom. Alright. So this was the Fifth duty of the eight duties is to be forgiving. Sixth duty, page 70, is to make du'a for your fellow mu'min. Big duty, big right that others have over us during his life and after his death. During his life and after he has passed away. And what for everything that he may rightfully, lawfully wish for himself and then also pray for his family and also pray for his children and his dependents. How much du'a? So he writes that you should make du'a for him as you make du'a for yourself, this is page 17, you should make du'a for him as you make du'a for yourself, making no distinction at all between the du'as you make for him and the du'as you make for yourself. Not that, oh Allah, grant me genital for those and grant the ummah jannah. Not like that. Right? Make du'a for him as you make du'a for yourself. And here, uh, this is the hadith I told you, Amin walaka amin. Right? And actually when you're making du'a for the fellow believer, the angel will make du'a for you because of your du'as for him. Seventh duty. Seventh of the eight, page 72. 
Seventh duty is loyalty and sincerity. Meaning of loyalty is steadfastness in love, remaining steadfast in the love you have for your fellow Muslim, how steadfast that you maintain it all the way to death. And then even after he dies, you have continued to have love for his children and for his other fellows. For love is for the sake of the Akhirah. All right. And this is very uh, the Sahih that Sayyidina Sallallahu that has been much commented upon in Ardeen that amongst their seven categories of people who Allah Ta'ala will grant his shade, the shade of his throne on the Day of Judgment, on that day where there will be no other shade. And if one of those seven categories are two Muslims who love each other for the sake of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, whether they are together or whether they are apart. It means that we have to find these relationships of love in order if we want to be one of those seven categories underneath Allah Ta'ala's Arsh on the Day of Judgment, that they have love for one another, whether together or whether apart. This also establishes that if, if there are times when one is together and times when they're apart, that means that that does not affect the relationship. It's not necessary to be with that person 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, no. That there are some feelings when together, and then when those feelings are developed, they remain even when the people are apart. Loyalty. Loyalty is similar. Loyalty considers... Oh, I did loyalty. What was the other one? Sincerity. Sincerity. Sincerity is to be extremely wary of separation and instinctively shy of its causes. What does it mean? That anything that could harm this friendship or end this friendship, I'm very careful to stay away from any and all such things. Okay, page 78. So the eighth and final duty that Imam Ghazari has mentioned is that you should grant your brother relief from discomfort and inconvenience. You should not discomfort your brother with things that are awkward for him. Rather, you should ease his heart of its care and needs. You should spare him from having to assume any of your burdens. You should not discomfort him with having to be polite or to attend to your rights. No. The sole object of your love should be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and being blessed by the du'as of your brother and enjoying the company of your brother and receiving help from him in your deen and drawing close to Allah ta'ala together with your brother. Then he quotes many, many, many sayings on this topic. Here then on bottom of 83 he quotes that Sayyidina Rasulullah said Al-Mar'u ala deeni That a person will be on the deen of their khalil Of that person who they keep as their intimate and close friend He quotes a long story on page 85 And then at the end The last two pages maybe we can just do them So page 86 he says that such then are the duties of fellowship and brotherhood. We have described them now in general, sometimes in general, sometimes in detail. But the matter is not complete unless they are taken, a person takes them as incumbent upon ourselves, and a person does all of them in regard and in favor of their brothers. And that the person should put oneself in the place of their servant. Therefore we should bind all of our faculties to their service. So here is going to mention some last few things. 
sight that one should look upon one fellow's brothers visually, one should look upon them with affection so that they can know and they can feel that affection from you. Number two, hearing. They should listen intently to the words of their brothers with pleasure and they should show that their words are well received. They should not interrupt their speech willfully or contentiously or intrusively. Third, tongue. We have mentioned this to this already. Fourth, hands. They should not withdraw their hands from doing any assistance to their brothers that they can do. Feet. They should use them to walk behind their brother in respect. They should not stride out in front of them in arrogance. When now Imam Uzayah then ends his last two paragraphs, he says that when their, this, jo- this joining of this unity and union between brothers is complete, then the burden of some of these du- duties are lifted. Right? For example, apologizing, praising, standing up out of respect, greeting one another, not with salam but otherwise. For these are the duties of brotherhood and contain an element of formality. But when a person fulfills all of those duties and then develops that close brotherly bond, then they can dispense with some of the formalities. Then they have a bit of informality in their relationship. And last paragraph, then he relates it back to Allah SWT. He says that that person who looks to fulfilling the rights and fellowship of their fellow creatures, right? But he looks to Allah SWT is bound to the straight path, both inwardly and outwardly, and his inner self will be adorned by the love of Allah SWT and the creation of Allah SWT, and his outer form will be adorned by doing worship of Allah SWT and khidma to the creation of Allah SWT, and this is the highest type of khidma to Allah SWT, since there is no way to attain the pleasure of Allah SWT except by good character, the slave can attain by the goodness of his character, the same degree that the person attains, that is attained by the person who keeps nawafil, who keeps nafil fast. And in fact, if he keeps good character, he can even attain a higher rank than that person who attains nafil fast. So we make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us fulfill the duties of brotherhood to all of the mu'mineen and mu'minat, but especially first starting with those who are already our closest friends, then our close friends, those with whom we interact with a lot, those whom we interact with the most, those whom we interact with more, those with whom we have so many opportunities and occasions to behave with them in noble character. Many times we are simply neglectful and lazy to behave with them in that noble character. اللهم إنا نسألك حبك وحب من يحبك وحب أمل الذي يكرمنا إليك يا الله يا بكريم Ask that you make us your true ibad. Ask that you make us your sincere ibad, your loyal and loving ibad. Ya Allah, we ask that you make us the true, loyal, loving and sincere ummati of Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And Ya Allah, we ask that you make us true and sincere and loyal and loving with one another. Allah, all of the things that we heard about today, and let each and every one of us do amal upon them. Let us, Ya Allah, we ask that you make this sitting together, this learning together, a means of our hidayah, a means of our makfira, a means of our changing our heart, Ya Allah, a means of our islah, a means of our tazkiyah. Ya Allah, we ask that you reform our character. You are the muzakiyah hakiki. You are the true purifier. Ya Allah, we ask that you purify our hearts. 
You are the true changer. Ya Allah, we ask that you change our hearts. Ya Allah, we ask that you soften our hearts with kindness towards our fellow mu'mineen. Ya Allah, we ask that you make us true to them with our tongue, true to them with our money and our wealth and our property, but true to them with our hands, true to them and enable us to help those who need us. Ya Allah, open up to our hearts those who are in need so that we can help them without them asking our help. Ya Rabbi Kareem, let us do amal on each and everything that was written and read and said and heard. And Ya Allah, we ask that you give jazat to Imam al-Huzairi, reward him for his efforts. Ya Allah, the sincerity with which he wrote this, the sincerity with which he taught these teachings, the sincerity with which the scribe wrote down his teachings, the sincerity with which over 900 years the Ummah has Ulama have preserved and taught his teachings. Ya Allah, let us receive these teachings with the same amount of sincerity. Let us imbibe and internalize these teachings with the same amount of sincerity. Let us do amal on these teachings with the same amount of sincerity. Ya Allah, let us fulfill all the hukuk of all of the mu'mineen. And Ya Allah, out of the barak of that, Ya Allah, make it easy for us to fulfill your hukuk, Ya Allah. Let us feel your rights over us, Ya Allah. Let us fulfill the duties we have towards you, Ya Allah. Let us be people who fulfill hukuk Allah. And hukukul ibad, Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Rabbana takamal minna, and Ya Allah, we ask that you forgive us for all the hurt we have caused others. We ask that you guide us to seek their forgiveness. We ask that you inspire us to make it up to them. And Ya Allah, those who we have hurt, we cannot even remember that we hurt them. Those who we have hurt, who may have already passed on from this world, Ya Allah, we ask that you accept these du'as on our behalf. Yes, we pray for their maghfirah. We pray for their hidayah. Ya Allah, that we ask that you fulfill their hukuk on our behalf. Ya Allah, that you fill their book of deeds with virtues on our behalf. Ya Allah, you ask, we ask that in the future you protect us from ever hurting anyone. And anyone who we do remember that we hurt, who we can still access, Ya Allah, we ask that you put it in, their, in our hearts to seek their forgiveness. And we ask that you put it in their hearts to forgive us. Ya Allah, we wish in, we in our own heart, Ya Allah, on this day in this masjid, we forgive everyone who may ever hurt us. Ya Allah, we take out all the grudges from our heart. We take out all the ill will from our heart. We take out all the misgivings from our heart. Ya Allah, we ask that you take out all the ill will from our heart. Take out the hustle from our heart. Take out the bugs from our heart. Take out the ghil from our heart. Take out the su'idhan from our heart. Ya Allah, we wish to be purified of all of these things. Ya Allah, we wish to be forgiving of others. Because Ya Allah, we wish you to be forgiving of us. Allahumma innaka anta afuun kareemun. Ya Allah, we ask that you forgive us, Ya Allah. That you are kind and generous in your forgiveness. Fa'fu anna, Ya Allah. Waghfirlana, Ya Allah. Warhamna, Ya Allah. Watubu alayna, Ya Allah. Ya Alhamdulillahimeen. Ya Rabbi Kareem. ربنا تكمل منا إنك أنت السميع العليم وتوب علينا إنك أنت التواب الرحيم وصلى الله تعالى على حبيبه سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين برحمتك يا رحمن الرحيم